Welcome to This Week in Hearing. I'm your guest host, Heather Maliuk, and I'm really excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Christine Sonstrom-Malowski. Uh, Dr. Sonstrom-Malowski completed her undergraduate and master's degrees in animal science at the University of Connecticut and went on to earn a dual doctorate in clinical audiology, an AUD, as well as philosophy, a PhD, from the University of Cincinnati. The focus of her doctoral work was the establishment of baseline normative brainstem auditory evoked responses, BEAR, in puppies and special operations, multi-purpose canines slash military working dogs. She is an associate professor at the University of Akron through the Northeast Ohio Audiology Consortium. She's board certified and licensed in clinical audiology, and she holds a certificate in animal audiology from the University of Cincinnati Fetch Lab. On a personal note, I have known Chris for several years now uh, through research, and for the past year or so, she has actually been my superior on a Department of Defense grant through which we have been studying pharmaceutical intervention for noise-induced hearing loss on human subjects. And I will say candidly that Chris is an absolute joy to work with and for. And even though my role recently ended with our research project, I, I know Chris and I will remain very close colleagues for the rest of our careers, and I guess that's just that's what happens when you put a couple of passionate audiologists together. Um, so today, though, even though I know her with human work, <laughs> we're going to mostly discuss her work with animals rather than humans. So I've had the unique opportunity several times um, to observe and assist at the Fetch Lab at University of Akron. And when I say assist, I mean I got to hold some puppies uh, <laughs> and keep them company for a little bit. And I will say watching her work with dogs has been very eye-opening for me because it's such a different side of audiology to have a dog as a patient rather than my patient population, which is adults. And I really respect this work, which is why I wanted to um, bring it to this podcast and to the rest of audiology. So Chris, thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy busy schedule to speak with me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I, so I want to dive right in. Um, with like a couple of questions to start with. Of course, I want to know your background and how you got started in audiology, but I'm curious, the animal audiology side of things, mm -hmm. is that why you became an audiologist? Because you have a background in animal sciences. I would say yes. It, it, and it stems from a, quite an interesting, I would say I come from a non-traditional background. Um, many of us audiologists come from communication sciences and disorders. And because of my background in animal science, um, I really come from that non-traditional aspect. And so when I was in my undergraduate for my bachelor's, this was animal science, your basic cows, horses, farm animals. And then my master's is when I started working with more of the bioacoustics, which is the sound and the communication of animals. And that includes the anatomy and the physiology and, and all of that um, intertwined within it. And so I was actually studying for my master's work, uh, the vocalizations of a beluga whale population in the St. Lawrence River estuary up in Canada. And we were using a hidden Markov model, which is like a clustering model to cluster the vocalizations to identify different social groups within the estuary. And so it was interesting because beluga whales are sexually segregated. So you have your adult females and young in one area of the estuary, you have mixed groups in another area, and then you have your like adult males, adult populations in another area. And what we found from that work was that from recording all those vocalizations and analyzing them, the amount of um, clusters that the vocalizations fell into for the females and young were much greater than those just for your adults. And it's just hmm. because I think of 
humans and how babies grow up and they're cooing and they're babbling and making all these sounds. And there's a lot more variety, if you will, in their vocalizations than when we're adults and we, we have an established communication. So um, that's really where my interest in, in audiology came from is, was my, my interest in bioacoustics and the anatomy and the physiology and the communication start of marine mammals, which then during that time, we were, we also started running uh, bear testing or ABR testing in dogs at the university, Connecticut mm-hmm. as well. And we were working in collaboration with um, the CSD department, the communication sciences and disorders department. And the animal sciences department kind of um, tag teamed and 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 worked together to start that testing in those animal in dogs. Um, we also tested marine mammals. We've also done bear testing in many other species and animals, which I probably won't focus on much today. But we have done this testing in marine mammals: beluga whales, dolphins, killer whales. Um, and so it's it's just a really really interesting field that I that I love and um, I'm very passionate about. So I'm excited. Well, and I'm assuming in Cincinnati. You probably wouldn't have the opportunity to test marine animals. We did. We did a little bit at the Newport Aquarium in Kentucky. Okay. Um, we tested some of the shark uh, sting shark ray, the shark ray that was in the pool. We did, um, which was through bone conduction ABR through the lateral line, mm. uh, and we we did some other. Uh, we did ABRs on like their, they had otters there. Um, so we did a little bit. Mo- a lot of the work that we've done through Fetch Lab is through aquariums, um, not necessarily your, your wild populations. I was lucky to have that opportunity during my master's work to work with a wild population. Yeah. But a lot of the other kind of unique work we do with more of your exotic animals is through the zoos and the uh, the aquariums. So I know your specialty as being dogs, because that's what I've seen you do. Mm -hmm. Did that come about just because that's where a need was? And so it was filled, or do you have a, an extra special interest in dogs? So we do, we do a lot more with dogs because the test is required by the orthopedic foundation uh, for animals or is encouraged mm. by some of these organizations for, to continue and encourage best breeding practices, especially for breeds that are more prone to congenital hearing loss, for example, um, like your Dalmatian one in six to one in eight are usually born with some type of con- with congenital hearing loss, um, in at least one ear, if not both. Mm. So certain populations, your, your breeds that have the, the white that are white, um, with, or white with some pigmentation or even the blue eyes, those are some of the genetic characteristics that are linked with hearing loss because of the, um, the genetic, um, it's, it's a, it's like a polygenic trait, if you will. So there's multiple genes that can contribute to the hearing loss. And so those genes also contribute to what we see with like your white, your dogs that have the white and, and, or the blue eyes, for example. Yeah. My interest in dogs, I've just, I, I've, I've loved animal behavior and I've loved working with dogs. I mean, even through animal sciences, I, I went down the route of, am I interested in becoming a veterinarian? And I had, I had a hard time with the sad aspects of that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I ended up c- kind of catching on with the audiology and, and, and I just, and it kind of stemmed from there. I'm kind of curious, you know, I work in a specialty music audiology and it's it, animal audiology is as rare as music audiology. And, you know, what I find is when I take students or, or when I was a student and I knew other people studying it, you know, you graduate and then you kind of end up becoming a typical audiologist. So mm-hmm. many do. I've probably had close to 60 clinical students and very few of them are actually working as music audiologists. 
So with you, somebody like you, you (laughs) went to school and you actually made it happen. And to me, that's fascinating. I, I want to know like what the first gig was that you had, like what was, you know, so you graduate, you're an audiologist and you say, okay, I'm doing animal audiology. Yeah. How did you, how did you start? It was somewhat of like a stipulation of my, my job <laughs> began because when I was doing, finishing my P or during my entire PhD program, I was the manager at UC at the university of Cincinnati's fetch lab under Dr. Pete Shifley, who is the founder of fetch lab for four years. And so, you know, I said to myself at that time, when I was doing that, I want to do this when I graduate and I'm going to continue doing this. And I was getting certified to do it. And I loved, you know, I I'm just very passionate about it. And yeah. so when I graduated and I was looking for jobs, one of the, um, I don't, I, I don't know, wanna, I don't know that I want to say it was a requirement, but for me, it was somewhat of a stipulation. I wanted to start a fetch lab and I was looking for an institution that was willing to support that. And that's, that's kind of how I landed my position here. Um, and we started the clinic, gosh, it wasn't, it was less than a year after I, I started my job here in 2015, we opened our clinic in 2016 mm. and been testing dogs ever since. And so there, there was a lot of um, networking and outreach that initially, initially just to introduce that we provided our services here. And I went to different dog shows and I presented for different down, like the Dalmatian club in different locations and things like that. And that's really how our clinic got started. There was a lot of student, there always is a lot of student interest. Our students are rotated through and they get to run, you know, when we have a litter of 12 puppies, they get to run 12 ABRs and there's no better experience than being able to um, routinely, you know, one after the other, after the other, run these ABRs, interpret the ABRs. I do a lot of education and everything that goes on in the clinic, as far as, you know, just teaching generator sites and things like everything they need to know for their clinical doctorate in audiology for humans. Yeah. I was gonna say, I've seen you teach that and I learned a lot (laughs) from watching that. (laughs) I don't know that I could ever be the one to place a needle electrode in a dog. (laughs) I think, you know, that might be tough for me a few times, but I think you're absolutely right. It's such a fascinating way for students to learn electrophysiology. Do you, so of course, a lot of students are interested. Do you find that a lot of practicing audiologists is that, are any reaching out to you saying, Hey, this is an area I'm interested in. We, we do, I, we do obtain those requests every now and then. And we, um, it, I think a lot of, I, th- I think this podcast is great today because I think what we do is just not known. A lot of people don't even yeah. know what we do. Um, and so I do, you know, we do receive those emails or those inquiries and, and it's really going forward about how to start up a program and, you know, what, what type of occupational setting are you in? Because it is different between the university setting versus um, like a private sector, right? So like at the university setting, we're regulated by the IACUC, which is the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. And mm. they regulate everything we do from how many dogs we can see from the consent forms, just really to, um, you know, ensure that safety for the animals for the and, and all of the humans. And everybody working in my lab is a member of uh, my current protocol through the IACUC. So um, in the private sector, I think the interest is starting to grow. Um, Certainly among those that are getting certified in animal audiology, there's never, I don't think there's enough of a demand to make this a full-time position for anyone, but certainly a special, like a specialized area, Mm -hmm. you know, of your job. And in the private sector, it really, the challenge is finding the insurance company and making sure you have that liability and everything, because what you're doing is different. A lot of people don't understand it. So you, you know, be able to, to clarify that for 
Yeah, but even thinking of conferences and stuff, you know, I think of how rare, again, music audiology is, but you, you'll usually see like a music course at a conference. Yeah. You know, people are starting to dip their toes in. This is an area where we don't see anything that I've heard Pete speak, mm-hmm. but as a featured speaker talking about testing elephants or whatever, yeah. you know, not like a class on, okay, here's the one, two, three of, you know, beginning an animal audiology clinic. And so, you know, when I think of this specialty, I think of it as one of the rarest mm-hmm. sort of most unknown, um, in the field. Mm-hmm. I, so kind of jumping off of that in terms of thinking about this, uh, clinically or, or like what the steps are. I don't think I've ever seen you from start to finish, mm-hmm. you know, I'm kind of in and out when I've been there. Mm-hmm. I really would love for you to give me and everyone else listening an overview of the clinical encounter, actually from like the first sure. phone call you get, you know, yeah, like absolutely. how yeah. does, how does all of this work? Like, what do you mm-hmm. ask the breeder or the owner? And then what does the clinical encounter actually look like? And mm-hmm. I would love for you to actually really lean into the difficulties, mm-hmm. you know, do you sometimes get a dog <laughs> in person and you say, this is not going to work today? Yes. T- tell me everything <laughs> like from start yeah. to finish, how does it go? So clients typically will reach out to me. There's a lot of, I did a lot of, um, promoting our clinic, opening our doors by going to certain veterinary hospitals around the area. And so a lot of these vets will refer out to our clinic. I either receive a phone call or I receive an email. Um, and at that time I follow up with the owner and I talk to them about, you know, what breed do you have? Is this a litter? How many puppies do you have? Um, we, we do a lot of hearing screenings, which I'll talk about in a minute when I get into what we do, but we also do diagnostic testing, which is a little bit more advanced. And with those dogs, I have, I ask more questions. So, you know, you're, are you, is it an age onset hearing loss, or I've been getting a lot of potentially ototoxic hearing loss, um, or, or. I can't say it was ototoxic, but dogs that are losing their hearing are going stark deaf, if you will, after being treated with some type of ototoxic medication. Um, less is known about that in the in the canine world, if you will, compared to our world, but it's it's essentially the same, um, same cause. So for once I talk to the owner and I get them scheduled, they bring their dog or they bring their litter and we bring them into the clinic. We kind of have we have a full sound booth, we have the test side and um well, what we would say where the audiologist sits to do the testing and then where the patient sits. And so where the test side, if you will, is like our triage room where we'll bring in the litter. We have a pen and we'll put all the puppies in the pen. This is for a litter, of course, not a single dog. Um, but at this time we'll do, um, we'll talk to the owner. We have the owner fill out a consent form that's regulated by IACUC initially. And then we go through, I, I usually take a case, a case history from the owner. If I don't on the phone, when I speak with them before scheduling, just to kind of gauge a little bit of information, some of my really good breeders will tell you they have one or two puppies that are either unilaterally or bilaterally deaf. And they know it just from doing mm-hmm. the testing and they've been breeding for so long. It's really interesting. So I always, I always take a thorough case history from the owners. And then we go through, we do otoscopy on each dog we apply um, a uh, lidocaine prilocaine combo, which is like a local anesthetic where the needle electrodes will go. There's four places on the head. So in front of each ear, top of the head and nape of the neck, um, we, we fill out all of our documentation. So the orthopedic foundation for animals has a specific form for bear testing or ABR testing in dogs, where we fill out the information about the, the gender. If the dog is chipped or has a microchip, we'll verify that and we'll run our reader through, um, the color of the eyes, any special markings. 
which that takes that learning curve in itself because all different breeds have different markings and the markings are not the same in one breed as they are in another. <laughs> so that's something over the years I've learned more and more about as we've had more breeds in. Um, and that's kind of just like the triage section, if you will, of the or day of the testing. Um, once they've all been identified, we've had, we have their identification, whether it's a chip number or name or a collar, uh, uh, collar, collar um, identified, then we will bring one in at a time to the other. And that's where we'll start the bear testing. And so or the ABR testing. So you'll hear me saying bear testing a lot. And just to clarify that, the animal community, veterinarians, OFA, or Orthopedic Foundation for Animals, they all refer to the ABR as the bear test in dogs, mm. the common language, which is why I'm always saying bear testing when I'm referring to ABR testing in dogs. And when I talk about humans, I call it the ABR. <laughs> That's good to know. Okay. Yeah. So just to clarify that language. Um, but when we bring them in for the bear test, we have a table and we have several, you know, several students helping us. Um, we put a thunder shirt on the dog, not so much to serve the purpose of calming the dog, although if it does, that's great, but more so to keep the wires um, in place because there's the, the wires, the electrodes that go in the head and then you have the inserts and you want to keep them separate. So um, the, the thunder shirt has a little flap that the electrodes kind of go in and then we insert those on, in the four places of the head. They're like acupuncture needles. You do need training for that. They're subdermal. You lift up the skin. Um, you need training for that, which you would get through the certification if you went through the certification in animal audiology. Um, and then we put a, this insert in the ear, just like we, we use the same inserts for dogs that we use for humans, which delivers the sound stimulus. And then we run the test. Uh, the parameters that we use are a little bit different for dogs because the OFA or, uh, requires just a basic screening. So not, it's even less complex than a screening that we do for our babies. Um, we really essentially are running a high intensity level. So like 80 dB NHL, or we actually use SPL for dogs relative to sound pressure level instead of NHL because NHL is relative to normal human hearing and dogs do hear a little bit differently. Um, so we use SPL and there's a correction factor there, but anyhow, so we will start the test. We at like a high intensity level. So 80 dB NHL for reference. Um, acquire a recording. We always repeat that recording and then we move on to the other ear and you interpret that. And the, the ABR waveform is, is similar to it, how it, how it presents in humans. Although the latencies are a little bit earlier and the overall, mor overall morphology is a little bit different. So interpretation is a little bit different. Um, I think how clinicians, if you will, or veterinarians, you know, some, some people label waves, some people don't. I think what we are doing in our clinics specifically fetch lab is more diagnostic per se, um, more elevated or advanced than what some of these basic bear com or bear screeners will do that mm -hmm. other, and other, you know, vets are using and things like that. So I, I definitely tend to go on the heavier diagnostic side also for educational purposes for the students. So they really understand what we're looking at. What are the generator sites? Where are we labeling? What are, you know, I teach, I have them on the computer labeling these waveforms and things like that. Um, and we also do masking, <laughs> which is also very much advanced compared to what a lot of these systems are even capable of doing. But if we see, you know, a response where it's questionable, we'll, you know, throw some masking in if we have a good response, a normal hearing ear, and then, you know, a poorer ear. Um, what about tympanometry? 
Because I know you, okay, I was going to say, I feel like I've heard you talk about wideband reflectance and stuff. Yes. And I'm curious, like, where does that come into play? Because I'm hearing screen, like screening, which I didn't realize it's more of a screening because what I've seen you do is so in depth. Yeah. (laughs) I I always do more. Yeah. I mean, even the protocol settings and the the number of sweeps, OFA says you have to run at least 200 sweeps for the screening. We typically in humans run 2000. I mean, there's a lot of differences. It's a lot. I would say basic for the screenings. Now for the diagnostic testing, um, we have experimented with different things. So I, we just published a paper on wideband acoustic emittance in dogs, which was really exciting because the, that's a middle year test. Um, and the system that we have does not require you to maintain that seal. And that's the challenge with the dog. So dogs have both a vertical and a horizontal component to their ear canal which makes any type of, you know, obtaining a seal or anything like that challenging because of just the anatomy of the outer ear. And so um, we recently experimented with wideband acoustic emittance because the system we have is a soft insert that goes in the ear and it doesn't require that seal or that pressure because that also can upset or startle the dog. There are publications out there on tympanometry in dogs, not much. Um, The the literature is is not... um, flourishing, if you will, there's a, it's a, it's an open area (laughs) um, for anyone interested, but certainly they've done tympanometry and the results look similar, the, the similar to what we see in humans, the wideband acoustic emittance that we did, the patterns were very, they were a little bit different in terms of the peaks and how they, and the troughs and how they fell, but they were similar, but different, if you will. There's a publication out on that for anybody interested that was recently published in JASA. So it's really, um, Mm. Cause that's the first time that's ever been published to our knowledge or, or that work's been done. Um, and then also on, for a diagnostic, we will also run autoacoustic emissions. If the dog is compliant, um, there are some vets that will sedate dogs or require sedation. We certainly don't require that for the clinic. I have tested hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dogs, since I started doing this and, you know, rarely do, does a dog need to be sedated unless you're dealing with like a military working dog, a police dog or a dog that is, you know, where you're at, where you could get injured. Um, is that even in the scope of practice? Not for audiologists. Okay. So if you need a dog to be sedated, that has to be done by the owners, by the dog's veterinarian. Okay. Administered by the owner. We don't do anything with that. Um, however, we have specific paperwork that needs to be completed by the owner's veterinarian. Um, if the dog is sedated and, Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've only had, I don't even know that I've ever had a sedated dog since I've been doing this in this clinic now that I'm thinking about it, but definitely out of our scope of practice. So, um, well, I know you've we, done work too with, um, canine handlers, like you mentioned military police stuff. Cause one mm-hmm. of the, I, you have a publication on that, correct? Yes. Or a paper looked, or poster or something. Yeah, we did a, we, we did a, I had a public, uh, noise, noise, or what were we canine? It was the, it was the handle, but it was just the owners. You didn't look at the dogs as well. Right. So you were just looking at noise induced hearing loss in the handlers. Yes. And we compared canine handlers to non-canine handlers and, um, looking to see if the hearing losses that we found in the handlers varied between the two groups. Um, and so, but we didn't do any testing in the dogs. I had this dog in a a year or two ago when I was working on that, on that specific um, research and, there was no way I was going to test that dog. It was too, they're way too high, strong. They're just, you, you really, they really need to be put under or sedated in order to do that type of test. I would say that's what I was curious about. Like yeah. who, who shows up and you say, okay, we're not doing this. 
Yeah. Well, the specific dog we had in started like ripping the foam out in between the sound booth. It was, it was a little, (laughs) (laughs) and the dog was just, they're just too high strong. I mean, naturally for what they need to do, they're working dogs. They're very, um, and so I just said, we're not going to go there. We, we could have, you know, the owner could have gotten the dog to sit for the test, but the problem is we're running electrophysiology. So when you have a dog that's moving around a lot or panting a lot, or is not willing to sit somewhat still for the test, it presents a challenge. Yeah. But like, where do you draw the line on aggression? Because obviously if a dog's coming in and they've never met you before mm-hmm. and they get a little nippy or something, mm-hmm. you know, we have certain lines we draw with patients, right? Mm-hmm. Where we're like, okay, if you're going to act that way, I can't see you. Well, what, yes. where's the line for a dog? Usually it's the dogs that are shy or timid that are more of a concern than even, you know, I don't typically have a dog that walks in the door. That's just an a, a aggressive dog. Cause we typically just don't see them, but I've had dogs come in that are very, very shy and timid. And, you know, maybe their tail is between their legs or, you know, they're maybe they're, um, like shaking, you could just tell that they're more timid. Those are the dogs I've been bitten by. Those are the dogs that if they're not comfortable enough and I can't even look in their ears or apply lidocaine or anything like that, I tell them that they're going to need to get a sedation from their vet if they'd like mm-hmm. to come to the test. Or usually what I do with the dogs that need to be sedated or put under is I'll refer them to some of the vets that we collaborate with that do this testing. Okay. At university. Um, and so usually I'll refer in that case, if a dog needs to be put under, if, if we're at risk, because I certainly am not going to put, you know, my students or myself in any, in harm's way in that regard. Yeah. Would you ever have the owner hold the dog or is that typically yeah. not done? Yeah. Yeah. It, it just depends on the dog. We've, you know, if the dog is more comfortable being held by the owner, I let the owner hold them and, you know, and it, otherwise sometimes they're not, sometimes the dog, the dog responds better when the owner's not even in the room. And usually the owner gauges that and, and can yeah. guide me on that. Um, but yeah, so, and I think, uh, what was it? Oh no, that was that. So I was just, I thinking back to the diagnostic testing. Cause that's, we typically will just do the autoacoustic. Oh, that's what I was going to say. The bear test for diagnostic is a little bit different too, cause we actually estimate thresholds. So that's the difference oh. the difference between the bear test for a screening where we just test, you know, one run, one run repeated at a high intensity level. And then we also will test um, for diagnostics, we'll estimate threshold. So we'll drop until we lose our response. Okay. That was it for like the diagnostic versus the screening, um, as far as the process goes. And then really after that, we unhook the dog. There's a lot of love and positive reinforcement. I mean, we want to keep it a positive, um, ex- experience for the dog, especially your puppies that will remember these, you know, moments potentially yeah. in their life. So we really want to keep it a, a positive um, experience. There's, we will give treats if needed at the end. Um, we also, at that time, will counsel and educate the owners, depending on what we find. So mm-hmm. if everything is normal, we'll fill out the paperwork, they submit that, we're good to go. If there's hearing loss, if it's like a diagnostic and there's some level of hearing loss, I just usually counsel and educate, kind of using the criteria that we do for humans right now. Um, this is something there is no real universally accepted norm, if you will for normal hearing for dogs. And that's something I've been working on for many years in terms of collecting data to try to create, you know, your, like your degrees of hearing loss for dogs, similar to what we have for humans. All I can do now is counsel based on what we have with humans and, um, and then educate the owners in terms of whether it's a deaf dog or unilaterally deaf, unilaterally deaf, usually localization is the biggest issue. They'll make great pets. We don't encourage breeding if they're, really deaf, um, bilateral deafness, 
that's when you want to start training using like methods of American sign language, hand signals, getting the dog to look at you is number one. Socialization is so important. I've seen that there, which Mm -hmm. was my first experience seeing someone use sign language with a dog. And uh, our, our mutual student and, you know, and she brought her dog in and she would, I think it was my first week doing research with you and her dog was in and she kept, I can't remember the signs, but she kept saying, good girl to the dog. And every time the dog would see those signs, the tail would wag. And I was like, this is just the cutest, most amazing (laughs) thing I've ever seen that that dog has communication, you know, that they can learn to work with whatever they're given and they want to communicate and that you were, you know, helping that process. I thought Mm -hmm. that was so amazing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I wanted to ask just a more basic question. Mm -hmm. Um, how many are you seeing? I feel like when I was there, of course I was around for about a year or so, couple mm-hmm. days a week. And I feel like you were always running to see a litter of 10 puppies or <laughs> like, or there's like an adult coming in and like, oh gosh, 15 yeah. Dalmatians just showed up. But like how many a, a week are you typically testing? Yeah. So we, we test one day a week, typically uh, in the morning and or afternoon if needed. And so it just depends. There's certain times of the year that we're busier spring, um, because a lot of breeders like to breed. And so the pups are born when it's nicer weather out. Mm. You see quite a few also in the, um, winter around Christmas, around the holidays, um, Christmas puppies. Um, I would say as far as we typically will have one, like usually once a week we'll have a litter in, or I might have a couple of appointments where I have a few dogs or a single dog and then a litter. Um, it, it just varies. It really, I think we slowed down a little bit after COVID and we're starting Mm -hmm. to back up. I mean, I'm booking out into October right now. When people are driving like a couple hours to see, yes, you know, that was something that shocked me as well as, I mean, obviously there aren't providers like you Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh, people were calling you from other States and then driving Mm -hmm. in to see you that, that fascinated me as well, because again, we deal with that music audiology, you know? And I was like, and this is what, this is what specialties are in audiology. Someone will find you and they'll come see you. And just so you are specialized in a lot of ways. And just to take a couple minutes <laughs> while well, you're a unique audiologist, I love alternative audiologists because there's so much more to our field than what, than what we typically see. And I wanted you to just touch on some of the other hats you wear. I know you through hearing conservation, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a hat you wear, but you're also, you know, talk about uh, just for a couple minutes, the courses you teach, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how broad your knowledge base actually is. Mm-hmm. So I teach uh, the vestibular courses here, the introduct- introductory uh, introductory to, I think it's balance assessment and management, uh, but anyhow, um, the introductory vestibular course, also the advanced vestibular and the advanced electrophys course and the labs that are associated with those courses. I also have taught the seminar in audiology, which is a research-based course. I've also, I'm also teaching uh, multicultural, multicultural issues for the audiologist for our first years. Um, and then an array of just the clinical courses that we have here, which like the students are rotated through fetch lab through one of their clinical courses. Um, and I really have an interest like you, Heather, (laughs) this is why we connect so well. I really have an interest in unique populations. So my work with the police officers that I've done is inspiring for me. And it really is an underserved population. The amount of noise induced hearing loss I found in that across that population is it's it, we just need to keep raising awareness and, um, promoting better care for these populations. Yeah. Um, 
also, I've done quite a few interprofessional activities here at the university. I work with a team here through a veteran grant that we have to for our own students that are either veterans or still active in the reserves that have sustained traumatic brain injuries or have cognitive deficits um, that need care. And we have an interprofessional team between speech language pathology, audiology, school social work, counseling, maybe. There's an interprofessional team here where we um, we run all the way from your basic, your hearing testing to your tests of auditory processing all the way through um, what the speech therapists do. It's a, it's a CT, CCT program, Cognitive Compensatory Training Program. Um, and that has been valuable for some of our students that have had those types of disorders or issues if you have. Um, I've also done, here I manage as part of one of the clinical courses, the hearing screening program that we have here where we send our students out to our local schools for hmm. screenings from all the way from, you know, we've done some daycare, but usually from the elementary level up through your high school level. We work with our local school districts. Um, I don't know. What else do I do? There's just a lot. You know, when I think of really busy people, I know you're always at the top of the list. And I know you're a tough teacher too, because I've watched you grading things sometimes. (laughs) Your tests are hard and you're very tough. And um, I think, you know, the the hearing conservation side of stuff, I I of course find fascinating. And I didn't mention that you and I were going on site to shooting ranges. Mm-hmm. Uh, with students and testing, hearing after shooting, looking for shifts. Fascinating. And again, that's yes. another specialty, another yes. niche area of audiology. This is a totally underserved population and talking we to just, those guys and saying like, do you realize what you're exposed to? And yeah. they really just don't have the, the educational component. Even. Yes. Uh, we fascinating. Just, I, I have to mention this because I think we talked about this when you were here, but last week we tested our entire rifle team here at the university. Um, it was a full day event. We tested 15 students that are part of our rifle team um, and and all the coaches have been tested with support of our athletics department. Um, in, and we also, we also held a hearing conservation education session that afternoon. And it was just a really, really successful event. And that's awesome thing that we laid the groundwork for so that we can continue annually testing these students that are exposed to firearm noise as a, um, as an athlete, as athletes. And that will be over the next several years and that, or that have been shooting since they were eight years old or, mm-hmm. um, and so that was a really, really, really good event that we started here. And we'll monitor these guys for, you know, their duration while at the university, um, which, yeah. yeah. And you're setting up good habits for life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing is reaching out to those populations. They're not in school getting, you know, while well, they're in school at Akron, but I'm talking about, they're not in middle school, having a hearing screening, whatever you're teaching yeah. them the value of an annual hearing test. And that's, I really think all audiologists should be doing that is reaching out to these younger populations and saying, Hey, let's look at your hearing and make sure it's stable every year, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and the value in that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know we, we kind of got off the animal audiology subject (laughs) because I can't help but lean toward hearing (laughs) conservation. Um, do you ever do hearing conservation with dogs? I learned the other day about, um, earplugs for horses. Yes. And so is that a thing for dogs? (laughs) Well, I was just going to, yes, I was just going to mention hearing protection devices because that's part of the education that we offer to these students and what some of them are doing. I won't repeat on here, but it's certainly not hearing protection device, <laughs> but for dogs, I mean, usually the con- the conversation about hearing um, preservation, if you will, comes up for dogs that are exposed to noise, like your police dogs or military dogs. Um, or the other conversation is if there's a dog that is undergoing like a long-term antibiotic treatment 
um, that are potentially exposed to the uh, ototoxic medications. And so more for the hearing conservation and the noise-induced hearing loss, they do um, actually, Dr. Pete Shifley out of, uh, out of Cincinnati, one of my, if not my ultimate best mentor, but um, he developed in collaboration, I believe, with their engineering department and for the DOD or the Department of Defense, I believe, um, they're called CAPS and they're actually hearing protection devices for dogs that go over the ears. So they're muff mm-hmm. are designed to be not to be um, cumbersome, if you will, because sometimes these dogs will also wear goggles and things on their eyes as well. And they were also designed so that you, the handler through the hearing protection device can communicate with the dog Um, because these dogs that this is really where the, my PhD research stemmed from is that military working dogs were being flown like in helicopters with their handlers, and then they were being dropped you know, and then they weren't responding to their handlers at all because the dogs never had hearing protection and the handlers did everyone else in the helicopter did. Right. And yeah. so handlers were saying, you know, my, my dog's not responding at a, at a critical moment when they really need to be responding. And there's that loss of situational awareness. So, um, that's what really sparked a lot of that, uh, research and the development of these hearing protection devices that they do currently have for yeah. drugs. So that is awesome. Mm-hmm. That is, I, you know, and again, talk about an underserved population, dogs yeah. who are exposed <laughs> that nobody's thinking about. I mean, that's just fascinating to me. I, I can't believe we're already almost out of time because I have <laughs> a million more questions I want to ask, but you know, if there are audiologists listening or students listening and they're curious about expanding their services in this area, or even just expanding their knowledge, you know, if, if they want to read more where would they start? Like, do you have any recommendations for certain books or websites Absolutely. or anything? Mm-hmm. I would say, um, so Fetch Lab, is, it's a big acronym. It stands for the Facility for the Education and uh, Testing of Canine Hearing and the Laboratory for Animal Bioacoustics. I won't quiz you on that at the end. However, it was developed by Dr. P. Shifley. He's the founder. And that program is now at the University of Cincinnati. We have it here at the University of Akron and also at the University of Northern Colorado. I believe they have a base like in Alaska and they're developing another one in the Southwest somewhere. Anyhow, it's it's expanding and it's growing. And what I would say is the certification in animal audiology that you can obtain through that program is extremely valuable for any audiologist that's interested in doing this. Because like I said earlier, we come, well, maybe not myself, I'm non-traditional, but most audiologists come from a CSD background. And they don't have the background in animal behavior and animal behavior is critical to just like we were talking about when you say, you know, we're not going to do the test on a dog. You really have to understand, you know, their behavior, their signs, um, also understanding how they hear their anatomy and physiology, the ear, which is a little bit different than humans, not greatly, but a little bit different. Their frequency range of hearing is a little bit different. Um, and within that certification, you also learn about other animals, including, you know, marine mammals, birds, exotics as well as mm-hmm. animals. And so there's a lot of uh, specialized um, individuals that will also speak as part of the certification. Um, Dr. Pete's wife is a exotic animal trainer. She went to school for that. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage anybody that's interested to look into that program. Currently, you can obtain the certificate through the University of Cincinnati in Northern Colorado. You can obtain your hours here, but we don't currently have the certificate program here at Akron. But because of my collaboration with Dr. Pete in Cincinnati, the courses are all online. So you take the courses online. You just have to fulfill your hours at one of our clinical locations for the practical requirement. Mm-hmm. 
So that's what I would recommend because that will really help with the education piece. It is a 12 credit certificate program. Um, also, you know, just, I guess I'm thinking of like, if you wanted to start a program like this on your own, it's important to consider, you know, how are you going to be regulated and liability? Those are important, you know, and we collaborate with the veterinary community as much as we can. Um, mm-hmm. We have an inter, you know, disciplinary or interprofessional relationship with the veterinary community, with animal behaviorists, and, and that's what makes this work. And um, that paper, you know, I was telling the wide band acoustic emittance paper, we collaborated with Dr. Lynette Cole down at Ohio State University, and she's a great colleague of mine, and I refer patients to her, you know, often if I feel like a dog will need to be put under sedated or, or even middle ear issues, because that's, she specializes in dermatology and middle ear issues. And so um, just, you know, keeping networking, talking to people um, and educating yourself, looking at you know, the requirements and, and making sure that you're protected and you're, you're working with the right group of people is important, but it's an awesome field. If I can say anything, I love what I do. Um, I'm very passionate about it. I've been doing this for many years now. I will probably never stop no matter where my, the road, you know, where I end up. <laughs> um, but you know, there's, there's so much that we can still learn in this field. I think mm. like music audiology, there's just like so much we can do and um, and learn and, and, and educate. And so I, I really am passionate about it. I'm really excited to, to be talking to you about it today. Oh, I, I just love that. And it's your passion definitely shines through for sure. Um, even on a video call like this, not just in the <laughs> clinic. And I really appreciate you taking time to talk about it. I think I, I I'm sure there are many people listening who have never heard of this area of audiology <laughs> before, and it, it truly is fascinating. And thank you again so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. It was a pleasure. Thanks.